Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This is part two of our conversation with San Francisco attorney and journalist Eric Berkowitz, author of Sex and Punishment, 4,000 Years of Judging Desire. We consider the issue of sex between young women and older men, religion and sex, and same-sex intimacies. This program was recorded on December 29, 2012 at Radio Curious. Eric Berkowitz, uh, welcome once again to Radio Curious. Having a good time. So we were talking about the relationship and the social view of men who are considerably older than young women having sexual relationships with them. Yes, it's a very highly charged issue, and it's an issue that I've found that everybody has very strong opinions on. What's the genesis of that charge? Sure. It's a very, very charged issue in the second half of the 20th century because the notion of protecting children from sexual predators has really moved to the fore of media stories and legal stories. The age in California, what we call the age of consent, is 18. I haven't met one person who thinks that that is uh, high enough. (laughs) The notion of an older man, and it's generally men being older men, younger females, having the privilege, let's say, or the right to have sex with, uh, let's call an underage girl, uh, without strong criminal sanctions. If you even introduce that idea, you're going to lose friends very, very quickly, and you're going to find that the friends that you're with uh, aren't going to aren't going to stay with you very long. But that's taking it in again the greater Western culture, and particularly the United States. But if we go to other parts of the world, it's not quite that way, and it's accepted. Well, let me offer this: Is having sex with a 15-year-old in Germany? any more immoral than having sex with a 15-year-old in California. Let's talk about Spain. Let's talk about Italy. Forget other cultures for the, for the moment. The age of consent is quite arbitrary, and it changes all the time. About 110 years ago in California, it was 13. And uh, the notion of expanding childhood, expanding a zone of safety around a child and creating ever more intense criminal sanctions against men for having sex with women uh, is very, very recent. Now, is it a bad thing or is it a good thing? It's both of those things. The notion of abusing power, whether expressed or implied, is wrong. Let's talk about Roman Polanski for just one second. If he had been caught with the 13-year-old girl 100 years before he was caught. He was arrested in, what, 74? He would have been congratulated rather than arrested. That was perfectly legal. Since he was caught in 74, the, the, you have to t- stop and think, now, is he such a monster? Well, he gave this girl drugs. He, he was in a position of authority 
at least for the moment, against her, and and he should have suffered some kind of sanction. But we have a very, very strong view that there is no punishment strong enough for that. In fact, in many states in this country, when two teenagers have sex, one of them, if not both of them, uh, are committing a crime that could put them on a list of sex offenders for the rest of their lives. And that makes a criminal sanction that uh, you have, uh, that once you're on those lists, you're not going to get public housing. You're not going to be allowed to live within miles of a school. You're not going to be able to get a job. You're, you're finished. You're an outcast. You're ostracized. And you're not going to be able to get off that list. Very difficult. Cases. Very difficult. Who is the we that you refer to? The we that I was referring to a moment ago is the we of the citizenry that influences law enforcement and lawmakers to take moves to involuntarily adjust the sexual behavior of others, and if they won't do so, to put them in prison. That's the theme of your book, Sex and Punishment, 4,000 Years of Judging Desire. It absolutely is. And the we changes collective decision-making that leads toward sexual customs and sexual laws. That critical mass of people is very fluid, and it changes with borders and it changes with centuries very quickly. So in your experience that includes gathering the information for this book, Sex and Punishment, and the continuation of it that you're working on now, what do you think is the cause of the change? Well, a lot of it, I think, has to do with economics, and a lot of it has to do with class questions. Let's step back for just one second. There was a recent scandal of the French politician and economist Dominique Strauss-Kahn was charged with forcibly raping an African maid in a hotel in New York City that happened last year. Now, there were a lot of apologists for him, one of which was one of his friends in France who uh, said, I forgot the French phrase, I think it's trussage domestique. He was just taking a shot at a, a maid. This is what men do. Th- this is their birthright. A man of an, uh, from a high station life had the right, and in many ways still does have the right, to take sexual advantage of women for lack of a better word, beneath him, either in age and power or in class status. That's simply the way it went. The fact that Dominique Strauss-Kahn, if you want to say, got away with it, you know, we all have different opinions on that. But the fact that he was charged at all is astonishing. The fact that he even had to answer with disgrace or that his career was affected for a minute is astonishing that a woman of absolutely no power or class, an immigrant woman from Africa of color could complain and have her complaints heard to the extent that they were heard. They were, obviously, she was, she was raked up in the media eventually. That almost had to happen. I'm not saying it was a good thing, but that does happen. But the, to boil it down, the fact that Dominique Strauss-Kahn suffered even the slightest sanction for taking whatever level of advantage he took over a maid is, is, a, is I think, a very positive development. So you're saying it's astonishing and a positive development, and other people would say it's about time, and other people say she didn't prove her case. 
Well, yes. The uh, going back to you know, forcible sex is it's it's a very 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 difficult question, and it's something that women face repeatedly, which is if there if there has been an abuse of power against them, you know, how do you prove it? Let me tell you one quick anecdote from the book, which I think is amusing and also instructive. In Renaissance France, uh, what we would call a law book had a story of a woman who was raped by a man. Now, rape was always illegal. It just was never enforced. And there were unbelievable hoops for the woman to jump through in order to actually prevail legally against this man. She took this man to court. He went to court. She proved her case. And uh, the remedy then was money. And the judge told the man, pay this woman some money. And I forgot what the amount was. He did on the spot. And then she left. And then the judge turned to the man and said, get the money back. And the man, really? Seriously? He said, yes, go and find her. By any means necessary, get the money back. He finds her on the road. He tries to snatch the money from her. She fights him so tenaciously this time that he can't. The man goes back to the judge, and he says, I failed. The judge gets his guards to go find the woman, drag her back, and said, give him back the money. Why? If you had fought to protect your honor, as hard as you had fought to protect the money, you wouldn't have been raped. So there's the notion that that not only does a woman have to suffer an abuse of power, but she also has to fight back so tenaciously that there is no remote question of consent. And the notion of consent, and going back to what we were saying, the age of consent— and all of these questions is very, very fluid. And I think to some extent we're bouncing so far to the notion, so far from the notion of a woman being there for the taking to the notion of a woman's rights being protected that uh, there's, uh, there's, in, there's injustice of a different kind taking place. What do you mean an, an injustice of a different kind? Well, there's a case in Georgia where there was uh, a college student, no, a high school student, a black boy named Gennaro Wilson, who uh, was an honor student going to college, and there was a graduation party, and he ended up having sex with a girl who was 16 or 17, and he was charged with rape, even though the girl came forward several times later and said, no, he didn't rape me. This was consensual. But because she was underage, it was held to be rape. And he's he's been fighting for his life since then. And the notion of him being branded with the same level of opprobrium, with the same level of, of hatred and um, criminality that a man who jumps out of bushes and f- truly forces himself on a unsuspecting woman. I don't think that's fair. So there's a lot of men and a lot of characters getting tagged for life. If you want to add the notion of technology to it, that now with the internet and with instant communications, there's no way for people to remake themselves. There's no way for people now to redeem themselves. Your record follows you everywhere. So let's talk about the role of religion in establishing these lines 
these boundaries of sexual behavior between adults, whether consenting or not. Religion is central. Religion is absolutely at the, at the core. The only departure of religion really happened about the time of the American Revolution and the French Revolution, where the, where the idea of reason replaced religion as a, as a rationale for law and behavior. There was no difference between religion and civil society. For most of time, they were intermixed. There was no separation of church and state. I think it's very interesting, if you want to go into one of the aspects of the book, uh, there was something called the Reformation that happened in the 17th century, where the Protestant church was formed under Martin Luther and broke off from the Catholic Church. And as Europe tore itself to shreds trying to reconcile itself to a new Christian religion, morality charges were hurled back and forth very, very easily. One of Martin Luther's own favorite accusations, he didn't call the Pope the Pope, he called the Pope the Whore of Babylon. So when you say... charges of Protestantism against Catholicism was immorality. And in response to the charges of immorality hurled against the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church uh, began to hurl the same charges against Protestantism. And we have sort of a moral one-upsmanship that happened. I don't think there was any worse time for human sexual behavior when it comes to freedom than 17th century Europe. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with attorney and journalist Eric Berkowitz, the author of Sex and Punishment, 4,000 Years of Judging Desire. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Eric, let's um, move to another area. Can you comment, uh, if you would, about the uh, role in some countries where women must wear a burqa? You know, let me talk about that for just one second. Uh, I'm asked about this all the time. And one of the things that we mentioned is I, I, I really need to admit when I don't know. Okay, I've done probably more research on, on Sharia than most people, but I'm not anything close to an expert on that. Uh, and I really can't pass on Sharia law and the burqa. I, I can say that our, that is our, the we, collective Western society, if I can make that generalization, that our smugness toward uh, Islam our sense of superiority toward Islam, our sense that we've really come that much further than Islam is, I think, a little misguided, and I think we need to watch ourselves very, very closely. We're not that far away from Islam. I, I wrote an op-ed for the LA Times not that long ago. There was a, uh, a case, this really unfortunate Afghan girl had been raped, and um, her family shunned her afterwards. Very poor girl. Uh, uneducated, her family shunned her afterwards, and there were, and somehow the case reached the international press, and she became sort of a darling of the international press. The judge's solution to the thing is, well, you should get married. The girl is no longer of value on the marriage market. The man, I could brand him as a criminal. Here's the solution: force him to get get married, and that caused a huge outcry in the Western press. But that's our tradition. That's in the Bible. That's how a lot of cases are solved repeatedly. What do you do with a case of sexual transgression? You force them to be married. And we're really, as little as I know about Islam, I know enough to not fool myself 
that I'm in that much more of a enlightened position. It seems to me that if we accept as a given that the intellectual capacity of a female of our species is the same as that of a male that is beginning to take a hold in some cultures in our world brings about this conflict. It, it challenges the property right that used to be attached to women when they are married to a man. Well, let's jump back to Greece for a moment. I'll challenge that. I think you're right, obviously. But uh, this is what's so great about writing history is you always find the counterargument in human experience. In ancient Greece, in Athens, the apex of human achievement, uh, many agree, including m- myself, at least in art and architecture and philosophy, wives were not permitted to be educated. A good wife was was kept within the womb, was kept within a darkened house. Men, when they sought intellectual engagement, either went with other men or prostitutes. There was a class of prostitute that provided men with intellectual conversation. That was a, also it was a joke that was a routine by Woody Allen where, where he talked about intellectual prostitutes. But Aspasia, if I'm pronouncing her correctly, was the consort of uh, Pericles. And she was a very, very famous prostitute who ran what was essentially we would call the salon. She taught rhetoric to Socrates. Not bad. But she traded in her class, a prostitute could not have been of a lower class, for the ability to interact with men on, in, on something approaching an intellectual, uh, a level of in, intellectual equality. Uh, fascinating. Uh, the notion of keeping wives down, though, is actually much, much more prevalent. And as women gain more education, as they enter the professions, uh, a lot of the old canards fall. But they don't fall very easily. Eric, let's um, move to another area, and that is the disdain among some, if not many, for people who have sex with members of their same gender. Gay sex, lesbian sex. Yeah, that's about half the book. So, um, Why the abhorrence? Who should care what other people do? Well, I mean, that's a rhetorical question, and I agree with you that very few, if any, should. But that's not how people have acted. So why do they act the way they do? Well, what does your research tell us? The, the, the research is fascinating. The, the, it comes down to really to questions of maleness and femaleness. For most of the ancient world, a man was, was a person who had sex like a man, who did the penetrating. I'll, I'll be careful here. A woman was a person who was penetrated. That is, a man who was passive in a sexual act with another man was essentially treated as a woman because he was penetrated. So if you want to take that and say sex is essentially violence, that is a pretty good argument for that fact, that humankind has often looked at sex as a question of the giver and the taker. So homosexuality itself was net was not until the Hebrews proscribed, but taking sex like a woman 
turned a man into a woman when it came to his rights. That is, if it became known that you were uh, that you were passive sexually, your rights as as a man to participate in civil society were reduced. It made you like a woman. And to that extent, homosexuality, at least on the passive end, was considered to be a very, very bad thing. It was the Hebrews that really were the first who outlawed homosexuality amongst passive and active actors. So even if you were uh, active, that is, if you were doing the penetrating, uh, you would be branded as a homosexual, and at least according to the Torah, you that was an abomination on par with murder, and you were to be killed for it. So can you address this aspect as it relates to females, lesbians? Well, lesbianism was largely ignored uh, by ancient law because it didn't really ha- implicate property rights as much. It didn't really indicate. Uh, it didn't really implicate a man's prerogative as much. I find that lesbianism was outlawed and punished mostly in the Middle Ages and on into the Renaissance when a woman again. Uh, this gets back to what I was just saying, assumed the role of a man. That is, there were some cases in the book that are really, they're gruesome, but they're also quite interesting. There was one one woman named Katharina Link who was a cross-dresser, lived her life as a man, and was, in, in fact, was a soldier in three armies, and got married more than once. And it, her crime, she was finally caught, her crime was assuming a male identity and she used a leather contrivance that resembled a penis and that 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 was the key piece of evidence against her it was less the lesbianism than it was the presumption of acting like a man and so to that extent lesbianism has been treated differently than male homosexuality which i think has generally been um received a lot more attention from the law Eric Berkowitz, can you tell us about the research that you're doing in your anticipation for the sequel to this book, Sex and Punishment? There was a specific reason why I I stopped Sex and Punishment at uh, the Oscar Wilde trials uh, around 19 in the first part of the 20th century is because 20th century issues are so are so charged, I knew it would take up a book in and of itself. So I, 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 I saved those issues. So essentially, the, the new book is Sex and Punishment in the 20th Century. And that has a lot to do with women's rights. It has a lot to do with technology. It has a lot to do with uh, blending classes, homosexuality, gay marriage, the effect of science on reproduction, the uh, the fact that you know men aren't quite as necessary as they used to be for reproduction, uh, all of these issues, they're in the paper every day. I'm spending a lot of time in my little hole uh, reading and uh, going through the issues and coming up with uh, some really interesting stories to tell that hopefully will help us look into ourselves a little bit a little bit better. Well, again, Eric Berkowitz, thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And a pleasure. You told us about the aha moment when you were 15. Yes. Is there another one? 
there was an aha moment. Actually, it's a little sad, but it's true. Uh, it's when my mother was quite, quite sick in 2003. And uh, she, I was spending a lot of time with her that I hadn't spent before, just she and I. And um, as I look back on it now, she was not terribly long from, from the end. But I was with her and I turned to her and I said, I think I should really write for the rest of my life. And she turned to me and she said, I think you should. And I don't know what it was that formed that. Maybe it was with the fact that we were both facing oblivion. Uh, that is oblivion being the death of my mother, which indeed did happen. But somehow uh, getting a blessing from her to that extent was important to me. And um, I, I changed my orientation very profoundly. And at the tender age of 47 or 48, I left the active practice of law and uh, in, in, enrolled myself in the master's program of, in journalism at USC and began, have started to write articles then very, very passionately and have been writing ever since. In part one of our conversation, you uh, said you're doing what you would like to do and that's what you would like to do for the rest of your life. I'm so grateful, too. No holds barred. Is there anything else that you might opt for or include? Yes. And if you're asking me a personal question, uh, I want to play piano a lot better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I play music. And uh, if, if I could ask... If I could ask God for anything other than the survival and well-being of my family, I would ask him for more talent in music and, and more time to play. And um, if I could play a little bit more like Pine Top Perkins and my favorite blues players, I would. It has nothing to do with writing or law or anything. And finally, in addition to recommending a Nemesis by Philip Roth and Love and Exile by Isaac Bashevis Singer, is there another book that you could recommend to our listeners? I read a history of Jerusalem recently. Uh, it's a big book. Uh, it's by Simon Montefiore, and it is it's called Jerusalem: A Biography, and it deals with Jerusalem as both an idea and a place, and uh, as a magisterial work of history as a journey, as an expert piece of writing, and as a real page-turning story of humanity, that's it. That is a book that had an immense effect on me. I won't use it. I won't. It has very little to do with what I'm doing. I'm just stand in awe of his ability to, to take a huge amount of material, sift it through, find the, find the driving storyline, and send you down a class five wrap of, of human extreme behavior. Eric Berkowitz, thank you so much for being with us on Radio Curious. It's been an absolute pleasure. Eric Berkowitz is the author of Sex and Punishment, 4,000 Years of Judging Desire. The book he recommends is Jerusalem, the Biography by Simon Montefiore. You may hear part one of this interview at radiocurious.org. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, 
radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541, and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.